Now on RTE Radio 1, Dermot O'Leary joins Owen McDevitt, Ken Early and Kieran Murphy for this week's Second Captain Saturday. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Good morning, you're very welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Owen here with Murph and Ken. Hi there, fellas. Hey there, Owen. Not sure if you guys know this about me, but back in the day I spent a few years working in a well-known DIY shop in Dublin. (laughs) I I, I don't know why you're laughing, Murph. I won't reveal the name, except to say that there's no better buy in DIY. Now, the the one weakness I had in this role was that I didn't have the first clue about DIY. Pretty much any time a customer came anywhere near me, I would freeze in terror. <laughs> What's the difference between this drill and that drill? Is it safe to plug this coaxial cable into the back of my toaster? What is the point of a raw plug? I don't know. Please stop. <laughs> Let me go back to the paint section and mix some paints. That's a great crack off again. So even though my name tag informed customers that I was happy to help. Yeah. Um, they you were, were, you were always happy to help. You were just unable. <laughs> I was unable to help. That's what you should have said. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, they were probably better off ignoring my advice anyway. But there are some people in life who you should listen to. And our guest this morning in the early days of his media career Career, received a pearl of wisdom from a master of his craft. The guest in question is the wonderful Dermot O'Leary. The dispenser of advice was the late great Terry Wogan. What he told him, I'll let Dermot reveal a little bit later on, but it must have been extra special coming from Wogan as Dermot O'Leary is a proud Irishman himself and revered Terry Wogan for bridging the gap between Britain and Ireland. And he obviously listened closely because he's gone on to present The X Factor, Comic Relief, Royal Weddings and many more of the biggest shows on British television. The guy's a superstar and he'll be with you in just a couple of minutes. Now Murph Dermot may have broadcast live to 17.2 million people during the 2010 X Factor final <laughs> but has he ever faced the sort of pressure he'll be under today when he tries to become the second so. captain? No. Greatest sports person, sports person. How's that leaderboard looking? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, it's been a grueler of a season so far, on and wrestler slash comedian slash actor Ashling Revenge for the Famine B is still out in front of our leaderboard on 78 points. Tommy Tiernan is next on 76.5 points. Uh, Paul Howard is rock bottom with David Baddiel and last week's uh, brilliant guest, Porrick O'Brien, mired in mid-table mediocrity. Dermot O'Leary will surely be aiming for a podium finish at least oh, yeah. this morning. Now, if you want to get in touch with us, feel free to text on 51551, unless you're one of my disgruntled customers from 20 years ago. <laughs> Period in my life is over. Tweet us. you. <laughs> at second count. My toaster hasn't worked for 20 years. <laughs> and my house blew up. Uh, you can tweet us at Second Captains we'll play a tune to kick things off and then it's Dermot O'Leary on Second Captain Saturday I am just a man tipping on a wire tightrope walk Balanced on desire I cannot control These ever-changing ways So how can I be sure The feeling will remain It'll always change Everything I am 
side Got these little walls I couldn't break them if I tried But I promise I'll be true And I promise I'll be right Sickness and in hell In the darkness and the light bit of Irish music to start us off on Second Captain Saturday. That was Villagers with Everything I Am Is Yours. Our guest this week has already put in a shift, in fact, this morning as the host of Saturday Breakfast on BBC Radio 2. He's been kind enough to stick around and have a chat with us. Dermot O'Leary, you're very welcome to the show. Yeah, man, cut me some slack. (laughs) (laughs) That was lovely, by the way. Yeah, yeah, so nice. The the last guest, I should say... Really nice bit of Villagers. That was gorgeous. I felt like I was just putting my feet up and now... And I've got to talk. Oh, guys, <laughs> come on. Listen, the last How's it guest. Going, lads? You right? Great, yeah. Great. The, la- the last guest we introduced from the BBC studios was Claire Balding, no less. Now, we had to deduct points from Claire because she's distantly related to Oliver Cromwell. So, if you have any skeletons in the closet, now is the time, Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Are you serious? Apparently so. Yeah, yeah. I'm never going to talk to her again. <laughs> we only revealed it at the end of our hour-long chat with Claire Bowling, to be fair, is as well. She, so. Is she? Is it, what, is it like reverse, who do you think you are? She didn't know and you, let, you sort of told her and then deducted point and it'd be like, to hell O'Connor, Claire! <laughs> Listen, by the end of this chat, we're going to have a pretty good grasp of your own sporting achievements. We'll hold that oh, for the time God. being. I know, we'll hold that for yeah. now. But I do know you come from pretty good stock there. Your dad was quite a handy sportsman. He was really good, my dad, yeah. He's, my dad played for Wexford. And it was quite sad, actually, because he, he emigrated just before they won the All-Ireland. So he, you know, and when I go back now, I'm told, and this is like before I was on television or anything, when I was a kid, I was told as well that he was, um, he was kind of like the bright young thing of Wexford hurling at that time, and he would have definitely been in the side. So, uh, and, and, and he's pretty sanguine about it, but there's definitely still a fire there. So he played from... 12 to I think he retired when he was 50 like like a lot of the guys that come over they end up playing you know up in Ryslip and 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 um and it, it was New Elton but up in the in the GAA club up in Ryslip and you know they play way into the 40s so my dad um yeah my dad played for the Father Murphys over here who were a Wexford team and um and then played for Wexford back home yeah so this would have been the 1960s, 1968 All-Ireland exactly, Final was yeah. the one. So you, yeah, yeah, you said yeah. he's quite sanguine about it. No regrets at all. I guess he had to emigrate no, for real-life so. purposes. Exactly, yeah yeah, 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 exactly. So, but he, you know, he never stopped playing. And actually that was kind of, 
part of my upbringing was every kind of second Sunday going up and watching him. It would be either watching him play hurling or it would be like offloaded onto a couple of old ladies in a pub somewhere in northwest London and just like eat crisps and drink Coca-Cola for two hours while he went to play and then he'd come and pick me up. So, yeah, I, I, sort, of, I sort of got together with hurling from quite a young age, so I, I kind of got it. I was never good at it, though. Uh, well, how would you describe, well, you, maybe your own playing style in a moment, but your dad's playing style? Oh, he was memories, he yeah. was really nippy and he was, uh, I think he was corner forward and he was he was really, he was very, quite small like me, he was a bit smaller than me, dad, but um, he was very fast and that's kind of what I inherited from him. Uh, you know, I was no, I'm nowhere near the sportsman he was, but I was, when I did play the sport I played and still do, I, I suppose I was quite fast and quite tenacious, I guess is probably the way people would just describe me not very good but just quite fast and funny Murph I can help you out here because I have got there was an award given to Sean Hello. O'Leary this is in 2014 I believe Dermot was it a contrib- contribution right. to Wexford Hurling yeah 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 absolutely yeah I didn't get over for that but yeah yeah so this is what, uh, yeah, th- th- he, th- yeah. this is what the remarks said about him with his blonde head he stood out like a beacon and every time he played he was a marked man however once he gained control of the ball it was almost impossible to dispossess him he had an innate capacity to prize open the tightest defence with his bewildering turn of speed his control when in possession of the ball and his superb sidestep what a loss to Wexford Hurling <laughs> I, that's, I need to borrow that. I don't know if he, he, I don't know if he's heard that, but that's like an epitaph. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's really nice to. I've never heard that before. It's really nice to hear. Actually, yeah. about your dad. He obviously passed that on to you then. If you watched him playing in the fields of London, pass on that love of GA. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, like, it's funny. I wouldn't know. Like, I know the rules of the game, and but because you only you, you can get it on Sky over here, so I so I'm not like the intricacies of who's doing well. I mean, I know, I know Limerick and Galway are in the All-Ireland and, and I watched the semi-final on, on telly um, or both semi-finals and both replays. Um, but I'm not, um, like, I don't avidly follow Wexford as much as I'd like to. But, I, but now mum and dad have moved back to Ireland. Uh, they moved back last year. I'm going to start hopefully going over and, um, and watching Wexford in, in Wexford Park. What, what, we, what we used to happen when Wexford had that great team in the 90s that only won one All-Ireland but got to a few Leinster finals and uh, so forth. We used to go up to... And I was, at the time, I was, I was working as a runner in television and so, uh, or a researcher, and I'd fly over on the Friday or the Saturday with my dad or I'd meet my dad over there and we'd go and we'd stay in Dublin and we'd watch like Wexford play. So that kind of great mid-90s team that ended up winning the All-Ireland. I got, I got to know them and support them like quite intimately. I've heard you describe your upbringing in the past as very Irish. So how Irish are we talking? Yeah, yeah. How Irish? <sighs> kind of, I mean, unless you've moved away and you've got kids, I suppose, it's quite difficult to explain that, especially at the time in the 80s. It was very distilled, I suppose. So, so when you shut the door... It, it felt like a, you know, a, a, outside it just felt like, you know, I went to a, a Church of England primary school and a Catholic comprehensive school. And then, but as soon as you shut the door, it felt like a very Irish household. It felt, um, you know, um, with my mother's influence and my father's influence and, you know, the, the crucifix up. And, and it just felt, it felt like a, a, a little bit of Ireland sort of, you know, brought to the UK, which I suppose you could say with any immigrant or uh, diaspora's kind of uh, kind of household you know that, that kind of i guess you become slightly i always describe myself as i'm irish but not from ireland if that makes sense mm-hmm. 
Um, like it's a very, like I said, it's a very kind of bottled and distilled, uh, concentrated Irishness, I suppose. But once, but we, but one that that never, like I was never. No, it's weird. I, in one respect, I, I had an Irish passport since I was a kid, and I've never had a British passport. And I don't hold that as like a badge of honour or anything. Uh, it's just something that happened. They never sort of forced that identity down our throats. It was just, it was just, it just felt very natural for us. And I think because of that, they assimilated very well to to the kind of the UK society as well. So it never felt like those two uh, influences or those two fathers, you know, uh, uh, weighed particularly heavily on our shoulders. Uh, I did hear a mention of a ban on watching foreign sports well, <laughs> instigated only I think by your granddad to be fair not your parents oh, yeah. <laughs> but I mean yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this extended to you know the even the most Irish of like athletics was banned in your house I, that, I, mean, I like, know come on. yeah 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 <laughs> if we if granddad was there and football was on that was it we couldn't watch the football and then and, and I like you know I love football and I loved uh, I probably love playing rugby more than any other sport uh, I, I couldn't watch rugby, and then, um, and then it was, I remember once we were watching athletics, and they came, yeah, turn that foreign muck off. I'm like, it, it, it's running, it's just guys running around the track. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not guy, my granddad. But then you yeah. th- if you look, you know, that, well, I mean, what 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 year was it that the GAA allowed? Football or rugby into the state, into Croke Park? Uh, 2006 was it? 2007. 2007 right. was when yeah. I was That's not a long time ago. No. But that's actually, you know, sporting-wise, the 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 game that Ireland played against England in Croke Park was one of the, I think, era-defining games, not necessarily because of the result, even though Ireland won. It was because you could... And it was, I think, it was a, it, in, a, in a weird way, and please take this the right way, I think it was when we, as modern Irish, almost felt like we, like the country grew up and the, the English national anthem was played. And this sound this is going to sound odd because I've got this English accent, but the English national anthem was played... And it was just respected impeccably. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. And that made me more proud than any any sporting result, I think. Does that you, make sense? Yeah, it does, yeah. Now, you, just to take you back there, you said that your parents have moved back recently. That's after almost 50 years? Yeah, 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 for sure. Why did they decide to move home? Um, I think it's been in my dad's mind for a while. I think um, Brexit played a part. I think... Um, uh, I think he's seen a few of it, a couple of his sisters moved back and it went very well for her. And um, and I think me and my sister are, are growing up and they both felt, I think, that they could, you know, uh, it used to be a one-way t- ticket. And, and, and for many people, it, it kind of still is. But it's also hand luggage and an hour-long flight. And it feels like it's... Um, doesn't feel like it's too far, and I, you know I've got the I've got the trip kind of down pat now, and I I'll get into Dublin Airport, hire the car, and I'll be down in Wakefield within kind of two three hours, which is it's a different world from when I was growing up because we either got the ferry and that took like a day, or if we ever did fly, you got stuck behind a tractor on that road down to Wakefield and you were done. I mean you were <laughs> you were just behind those guys for like five six hours in like you know. You know, in a, in a bus or in a car, and so now it just feels it's so easy. So I think I think the fact that um, they knew they could they can get to the UK relatively easily and vice versa was was kind of uh, sort of key in their movement. And I just think my dad just felt like a, a my mum as well actually, uh, and she's probably felt it more since she's gone back. I just feel I think home was just calling for him. 
You said Brexit played a part. Is that just this, the, the change, changed atmosphere in the last two or three years? Yeah, it's difficult to pinpoint that because I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if there's anything tangible. Mm. I just think, uh, you know, my dad's a very proud European, and I think that there was just a, um, I wouldn't even say like you wouldn't pick anything up on the street or anything like that. I just think, I, I think, if I'm honest, I just think the result of it made him quite sad, and I think that that. that it's as simple as that. Yeah, there's a lovely, you put up a lovely Instagram post saying that since they've moved in 68, people have been nothing but kind, welcoming and generous yeah. to them at a time when it wasn't easy to be Irish in Britain. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, been, yeah. Uh, yeah they've, they've had a good run of it over there. Another big connection to home for you and your parents, I believe, was Terry Wogan. Uh, I mentioned yeah. earlier on that, that he was a bit of a hero of yours. Is that right? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. When Wogan, um, I mean, you know, go back to that kind of, uh, distilled identity, I suppose. Wogan was, um, you know, and he sort of said himself he was considered by many to be a Westbrook because he came over and embraced a life over here. Uh, but Wogan, for for many people, was was like, a our kind of our boy done good, and b it still felt like a voice that was familiar from home for for many people. So I kind of grew up listening to him on the radio, and then my uncle Frank was an electrician for the LEB in London, a London Electricity Board. And then when he retired, um, he, you know, found himself a little bit uh, at a loss. He wanted to, you know, uh, take up some time. And he ended up working as a security guard at the Shepherd's Bush Theatre where Wogan was being taped. So we used to go there, like, once a series, we'd get tickets. And it was great. I mean, it was kind of... And that's actually was kind of where I sort of fell in love with telly as well, I guess. The first time going down there and being in a theatre, so I mean, so atmospheric and... <laughs> Um, and then watching, you know, watching Wogan, and he was a master at, um, at sort of it's just like lovely kind of light banter that that could, you know, engender some fantastic anecdotes. He was brilliant, he and, he was, and he was an absolute master at radio. I mean, God, he was so good at radio. I mean, my first, um, my first uh, um, few days at Radio Two, and and you know, put it this way, when I started at Radio Two, something like. 14 years ago, I was considered like, oh, who's, the, who's the new guy? Who's the young guy? 14 years later, they still call me the young guy. <laughs> I mean, it's like, and, uh, and Terry was, A, very welcoming and was, um, was just very warm. would always ask about home. would always talk about the rugby. would always, always ask about my parents. And also just very supportive. I'm, you know, and the first piece of advice he ever gave me was never be afraid of the silence. And there's something kind of, you know, very timeless and poignant in that. And even now, like I'm a gabbler, I talk too fast. But Terry is, you know, there was a there was a real kind of sense of authority and poise about the guy. Did you take that on board when he when he spoke to you? I tried. Must have been a special moment though to have somebody like that. They say never meet your heroes. To use the greatest cliche in the world, Dermot. But to yeah. to meet somebody, find him so warm, and actually to go out of his way to give you a helping hand when he he doesn't have to, obviously. Uh, the best, really. I mean, actually, to be fair, Radio Two is like chock full of legends, and they're all. Like, not one of them has ever been anything other than kind and generous and supportive to me. So that's what, I mean, that's why I'm still here. That's why I love it. Now, listen, you're an Arsenal supporter. Yes. Which is an interesting thing to be right now, particularly as tomorrow's game against Manchester City is the first match in how long? 22 years with no Arsene Wenger in the touchline. Yeah. It's really odd. It's a really odd time to be, an exciting time to be an Arsenal fan. Because, you know, Wenger's, in many ways, the only manager I've known, even though I've been supporting like Arsenal all my life, really, I've, I've, you know, I, I, in terms of going to watch them live, he's 
in many ways the only manager I've known. I remember I remember I probably went a few times under George Graham and then Bruce Rioch, but like you said, 22 years of this guy. And I, it's so, I, I, you know, I, I lamented him going, but I understood the fact we probably needed change. And I think since he's probably, since he's left, he's come out and said, I probably stayed a little bit too long. I think where... I, I, I had issues with how he was treated by certain sections of the fans, um, uh, but but you know I, I understood we needed to change because we were watching the same movie of relatively good start, uh, kind of quite brittle um, a team in terms of the confidence, playing against the big side, the big sides losing, getting to a stage of the season in about February time when we were kind of out of everything, and then going for fourth, and then even that kind of slipping away. Um, so. I think everyone sort of felt that change was right and uh, uh, timely. I think what's interesting now is I have no idea <laughs> what team I'm supporting. I've no idea who is going to play. I've no idea the style of football we're going to play. Uh, I've watched a little bit of the highlights of us in a preseason. And it, and that's what I really find exciting. Like, I have no idea. Like, I support the club, but I have absolutely no idea what team I'm going to be watching and how they're going to play tomorrow and how we're going to... Um, stack up against a very very strong Manchester City team so it's exciting and and also I think our expectation level isn't sky high because we were so spoiled with Wenger so early on that it all, he almost made a rod for his own back because actually if you look his recent record for the last five years was like three cups or something in five years and that's not that's you know that's 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 no mean feat but because of the success that had gone on before him in his early years rather um, he was always you know, held up, you know, and judged by that success, the invincible year and the doubles. So he was almost always in a hiding to nothing. I think, I don't expect to see Arsenal win every year. I don't, which is just as well. But I, I just want us to see, I'd like to just to see us to compete and, um, and go down swinging. Let's get down to business, Dermot. Your own yeah, sporting I'm career. I'm nervous about this. You're nervous yeah. about this, yeah. I mean, you've had some big yeah. broadcasting moments, but I'm sure this is right up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Did your father's yeah. hurling talent? Let's get to the hurling first of all. Did your father's hurling talent rub off on you? No, not hurling. I was absolutely useless hurling. Right. And then I wanted to play Gaelic, but I found the ball, the ball because I played rugby. Every time I picked up the ball with Gaelic, the ball's so heavy. <laughs> in comparison, that's yeah. so I played. I played rugby in the winter, and I played American football in the summer. And I was because we had weirdly was, there's quite a big American football league over here. And where I grew up in Colchester, which is about 60 miles northeast of London, it was quite near where all the American air bases were during the Second World War, and it's still there. And so quite a lot of Americans would end up playing like, locally American football. So we had a coach guy called Doug Kenyon. So our first year in American football, I played for the Colchester Gladiators, um, uh, who are still going, and I played for the junior team when I was about 15. And we played our first year, and we lost. We, I, I think our record was 0-9-1. We drew one game against Basildon and it was nil nil and uh, we didn't until we went through a whole year and not scoring a point and yet somehow and this is one of the formative I still say it's one of the formative experiences of my life we stuck together and we finished that year and then we got a new coach in this guy Doug Kenyon from Colorado who's this in, like incredible swimmer and 
he was quite he was an odd guy because he was really disciplined and yet some of the older guys he used to chew tobacco and some of the older guys been looking up to him started to chew tobacco and he sort of turned a blind eye to it like there's 16 year old children chewing tobacco Not like, great. get that like one of our linebackers is kind of like you know spitting tobacco out on the sidelines like what are you doing but he was a great coach and he was a really good motivator and then we turned it around and so, and so I became and he, you know he's a proper follow, follow follow this guy over the top kind of coach he was brilliant so I became obsessed with American football and I played American football from 15 till about my late 20s and loved it and I missed it terribly when I had to give it up so these were what, my rugby any, just before the rugby Sorry, were, these, were these sort of like any given Sunday style speeches that this guy was giving oh yeah. There? yeah yeah absolutely yeah and then, and then I got into rugby a little bit later. I got into rugby. I love rugby at school, but we didn't we didn't play it properly. Like we didn't have a hookup with the local club. But I really enjoyed it. And then when I got to sixth form, um, I sort of couldn't wait to start playing on the team. And then we and then I just stayed with those guys for three years. And that was actually you know some of the best highlights and team experiences of my whole life. So I, even now I play five a side on Thursday night uh, in Brixton and. I, I miss team sport. I love it. What position were you in in rugby? In rugby, I was. I really wanted to play scrum half, but I, I couldn't pass as well on my off my left hand. <laughs> uh, I could on my right, so so uh, I ended up playing wing, um, and then I kind of graduated to centre. Okay, so a little bit of it. There was a turn of speed there. There was some quick feet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then American football. I was kind of. I played receiver and running back, so I was always kind of a ball <laughs> carrier, and I really enjoyed that. Okay, sounds like a pretty glittering underage sporting career, Dermot. I'm going to yeah. ask you, I'm gonna have to push you Appreciate for one, it, yeah, one particular highlight. Give us one highlight out of that career. Okay, uh, Colchester sixth form uh, versus our arch rivals, Royal Grammar School. We are one try down and it's about 70 minutes um, uh, on the clock. Yeah. And the ball's coming out to there. It's being passed through the, uh, down the, the, um, the line. Mm. And... Um, and I see the ball and it hits the ground like this pass goes astray. And I think, and I, I either play it safe, wait for their winger to pick it up and then smother him, or I go for the interception. And, but, but the interception is, is predicated on which way that ball is going to bounce. So I've got 50-50. And I just think, I oh, do you know what? Let's just go for the interception. It, it literally comes up right in the bread basket and I just scamper <sighs> like, the, like maybe 80 yards down the field and then stupidly the last minute I hear Patrick Lucas who is still to this day a very dear friend of mine who is by far and away our best rugby player saying I'm on the outside if you need me and instinctively I just popped the ball up to Patrick and he scored and 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 as soon as I put uh, put the ball up to him he went over the line Uh. and I just thought to myself what have you done? (laughs) This is like this could have been your greatest moment and you've just and Patrick scores every week What have you done? And so I give Patrick the ball. He scored. And admittedly, everyone pat me, patting me on the back. But still, I'm looking at him going, what? What? Why did you say? Because I, I just, but, because he said, he said, I'm on the outside if you need me. I thought, oh, I should pass to Patrick because he's the best player. Uh, yeah, but it's still to this day probably my sporting highlight. Oh, we've all been that soldier, I think. We've all, we've all passed yeah, the book Yeah, exactly. Listen, Jeremy, you've been involved in some of the most tension-filled moments in the history of British television, but nothing can prepare you for what's coming next, I'm afraid. Murph, oh, God. could yeah. you please rank this sporting life of Dermot? You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have, then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. 
Alright Dermot It's all been very mild mannered so far But this doesn't mean I'll shirk my responsibility When it comes to ranking Your all time sporting highlight Identifying the sports person That we feel most closely Resembles your sporting personality And then marking you out of 100 As part of our quest To find this year's Greatest non-sports person Sports person It might be brutal Marvellous. But it will also be Extremely unfair So there is that So from a <laughs> From a stellar underage Hurling career To a 24 hour dance For comic relief Via an aggressive Chris Ashton-esque career As a rugby winner And even a stint As an American football wide receiver your sporting career has been wide and varied your sporting highlight comes from the world of rugby as you've told us and that glorious missed personal opportunity for Colchester <laughs> 6 form remains your sporting highlight the momentary glimpse of glory only for it to be snatched away even if it is only by your own teammate puts me in mind of no one more than Devon Locke grand national non-winner in 1956 <laughs> who like yourself was also from an impeccable sporting bloodline <laughs> now before we get to a final tally we do offer points bonuses for explicit shows of your love of Ireland and I mean explicit so according to our research we believe that you have a tattoo somewhere on your body expressing a love for this uh, sweet nation of ours is this true or should we hire better researchers one point for a discreet above the sleeve <laughs> upper arm tat ten points for anything in your <clears throat> swimsuit area yeah yeah then I've got both <laughs> go on yeah I've got a Cel- I have an old Celtic cross yeah uh, that my wife just about tolerates and when I was 18 I had a shamrock on my on my butt Oh my Which I, re- like, I really need to get rid of. <laughs> no, I surely. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll deduct points uh, po- posthumously for that shamrock to do if it uh, dies of death. Uh, it's, se- it's 73 points for you, uh, Dermot O'Leary. Hey. This has been oh. your sporting round of applause. Not a bad score at all, Dermot. Thank you so much. Is that good? No, uh, it's mid table. Mid table. I'm not going to lie to you. Second from How bottom. How is 73 mid table? <laughs> <laughs> Dermot, thank you so much. Pleasure, guys. Nice talking to you.
Southern Man there by Neil Young on Second Captain's Saturday this morning. 51551 if you want to get any texts into us. Eamon has asked, lads, is it true that Dermot O'Leary is a big fan of Irish country music? Well, too late to ask the man directly, but yes, Murph, <laughs> it seems our research is, has been strong so far. The tattoo okay. was 100% yeah. correct. Right on his arse. Yeah, I mean... That, that's some good research I'm not going to lie to you that's pretty top level uh, Oh, I love hearing Dermot this morning always 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 references his support of Ireland's teams in rugby and soccer no matter how big a star he has become says Linda yeah well as he said himself oftentimes when you grow up as a you know as the son of uh, or daughter of mm. Irish people you, the, the bond you feel is actually hard to explain to those of us who've never left Yes. It can be sometimes be more intense or certainly a different type of bond. Yeah, and he hasn't he hasn't given it up over the years, there's no doubt about that. A lot of big sport happened today, Murph. Not the least of which is an all Ireland football semi final mm-hmm. between myself and Ken's beloved Dublin and your own Galway. <sighs> thirty five years on thirty five years we've waited for revenge. Uh after what is generally regarded as the worst all Ireland football final ever played in nineteen eighty three, when uh, Dublin beat Galway. 110 to 1-8. It's maybe a little unfair to say that Dublin beat Galway. It was almost really the time and uh, that Galway basically failed to beat Dublin rather than Dublin beat Galway because Dublin had three men sent off. So for a large portion of the second half, they played with just 12 men. Sorry, Murph. 12 apostles. Well, the Dirty Dozen. Uh, everyone else in the country called them, but whatever. <laughs> 12 apostles up here. <laughs> So, yeah, it, they, there was uh, uh, Brian Mullins was sent off early on. Then there was uh, two men sent off for basically nothing. In, in one of the dirtiest games of football ever played, two men were sent off, uh, Ray Hazley and uh, Tomás Tierney, for kind of handbags underneath the Hogan stand before the end of the first half. Then Kieran Duff was sent off at the start of the second half. And with a two-man advantage, playing with a gale of a breeze, apparently, in Crow Park that day, uh, Galway still couldn't manage to reel... Dublin back in and uh, yeah I mean it was a day of shame for the GA generally Uh, for Galway it was kind of like it was the national nightmare you know if you can reduce that to just sort of the county level Uh, I remember when TG Cahar started uh, way back uh, in like the mid 90s they started showing GA goals you know so like all these old GA games started being shown on TG Cahar for the first time and I remember the the first week or the first couple of weeks they showed the 1983 final and it was almost like Galway still hadn't won another All-Ireland or had even gotten back to another All-Ireland since 1983. So it was kind of one of those where we'll tape it but I can't ever really see any Galway person actually sitting down to re-watch the 1983 final. And then Galway won the All-Ireland in 1998 and then everyone was like, okay, we can now talk about the 1983. The yes, yes. Yes, the boil had been lanced to, to some degree. Murph, I... Do respect your knowledge of these matters, but there's mm-hmm. only one man in the country whose knowledge I would respect a little bit more. Can we okay. please, please put a call in with your Uncle Jim on this? Jim Carney, first ever presenter of the Sunday game. I think that's see probably we, a good see idea. See if we can dial Jim up and chat to him in a couple of minutes on Second Captain Saturday. Second Captain, first Captain, whatever. It is a glory to behold When you wear the purple and gold Come on, Oxford! The old jigs and the reels I like swinging Now you have it When Big Tommy's singing Catch me if you can My name is Dan Sharon, yeah, man You know Yeah, it was Linda who texted in about Dermot's refer- referencing of his love of... Irish sport and it goes beyond Irish sport there Linda I think it's mm. fair to say you'll know Dermot O'Leary who we're speaking to today from 
presenting the X Factor, but he also belted out a couple of tunes himself there on the Late Late Show and on Channel 4. Yeah. I wonder, you know, at what stage in your life do you realise that, you know, listening to Donald Shine does not perhaps place you in the vanguard of sort of modern musical culture? He said on the Late Late that he was a fan as an 8, 9, 10-year-old. Mm. As a kid... Brendan Shine was his man. Nothing wrong with that. Mm. Just, I wonder, going into one's teenage years, it might not be the sort of thing that, you know, is has broad mass appeal in your Colchester, uh, you know, secondary school. Murph, I'll hold you there. We've got a hold of Jim Carney. Jim, good morning. Hi, lads. How are you good. doing? The good, 1983, good. we've dragged you on to talk about the darkest day in the history <laughs> of Galway sport and possibly life. The 1983 All-Ireland Final. Are you okay to talk about this? Yeah, exciting new feature in Second Captain's Grim Reminder. <laughs> every time I hear, uh, every time I'm asked about 1983, lads, I think of what it must be like for Paddy Cullen to be asked about the day that Mikey Sheehy chipped him in 78. And what it must be like for Liam Salmon to be asked about the penalty miss when Paddy Cullen saved it. <laughs> but here we go again, you know. So just how how devastating a day was this? Did Galway go up with high hopes of winning this All-Ireland? They did, yeah. They, um, Oh, and it's very interesting, you know, in, in, in 82, which will forever be remembered uh, for Seamus Darby's goal uh, against Kerry, which denied Kerry the five in a row, which itself is interesting because Dublin are going for four in a row now. Uh, that year, awfully barely scraped past Galway in the semi-final. They won by one point. We had a long range free, very long range free in the end to make a draw, but that didn't. That just pulled short. So Galway were very good in 82. Again in 83, came out of Connacht. That was the time when we beat Mayo by a huge margin in one of those two Connacht finals. Just can't quite remember which one. I think it might have been 82. But in 83 then, we were very good. We got a goal from Val Daly in the semi-final against Donegal. We had very high hopes in... Um, uh, of winning the final uh, because we were just so good at the time but we didn't play well in the final uh, and it became a, really a sporting disaster I won't say disaster uh, it's a sporting disaster for Galway it became a black day a day that almost became unmentionable but, but with the passing of time I think it just turned into something else altogether nobody minds really talking about it now and a few years ago the Galway lads had uh, one of those anniversary gather meetings and golf, uh, golf day and all that I'm not sure where the golf day was and loads of them went up again. And uh, like the Dubs always, they are fantastic after finals. The same way that they traditionally, they always went to the stole races, no matter who won in Galway and Kerry. So with the passing of years, you know, we, the, the, that awful, awful burden of gloom and pall of gloom that descended over Galway, I think it has lifted. Well, yeah, I should say, Murph, I know you want to come in here, but judging by the texts I'm getting in from Galway people at the moment, <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure it's fully lifted, but go on. Yeah, well, see, that's it, Jim. You know, I, I, as I recall, that the, the, the aftermath, all of the, the sendings off and all the rest, yeah. uh, I mean, it stretched out into the entire winter. I mean, this was talked about for three or four months afterwards. Suspensions dated into five, I think Brian Mullins got a five, five-month suspension. I mean, the thing rumbled on and on and on. It was seen as just this horrible black stain against the GAA. Yes, yeah. I, th- I think that was hugely exaggerated as well. Okay, it was seen, you know, around the world and all that uh, at, at the time and everything else. But most of the fights in that game, and, and I remember, they were from the hold me back or I'll kill him school, really, you know. <laughs> I mean, even Kieran Duff, when he, when he, when he flicked the boot and all that at Pat O'Neill, I mean, Pat O'Neill and Kieran Duff to this day are great friends, you know, and they have met up regularly after it as well, you know. I mean, you, I mean, you will see better fights outside Supermax and Air Square, you know, at any night of the week in Goldwell almost. 
But because it happened there, it became a media you know, thing as well. You know, it was it, you know it became fashionable to talk about it as the day of shame. And, you know, you, you can look it up even on the computer. It was known as kind of the Norak and all that. But I mean, what what shame is in it now? Looking back on it, it's just it's it's a quaint kind of reminder. I think it's a museum piece almost in in our memories. So I don't think anyone in Galway really feels too badly about it anymore. But but we did for a long time. One reason why I think we didn't feel too badly about it was the team didn't play well on the day at all. They didn't make use of the wind. There was a shocking wind. It was one of the worst days ever for, for, for bad weather. Not so much the, the rain, but the wind. The wind ruined the game completely. And the other thing was with Galway, I think, everybody likes Bernie, Lock, Bernie Rock. Everybody loves Bernie Rock. And he's a lovely fellow. I met him as well. He's a, he's a fantastic guy. So Bernie is such a nice guy. Having scored 1-6 out of the 1-10 that they got... You, you can't dislike somebody who was so nice like that. You, know, you, you just can't. So Bernie Rock was the most unlikely hate figure of all time. And, and I think that was a factor too. Yeah, funny enough, I happened to come across um, Con Houlihan's article on, on this in his book quite recently. And he starts with a quote from Mick Holden, Dublin's Mick Holden, who said, yeah. it's the worst game of football I ever played in, but it was a great game to win. So I suppose yeah. it, it, it's something, a sporting event can mean two very different things in different counties. And in Dublin, yeah. it's, it's yeah. kind of a side note. In fact, it's almost a badge of honour that these 12 guys could carry it off. Yes, yeah. Can I, can I just go up on a tangent for a second? Absolutely, yeah. It? Mickey Holden, God rest him. I met him once, actually, and he, he told me a very funny story, actually. One of these lovely stories. But prior to the All-Ireland final, he was approached by Adidas and another company, which I think was Puma, I'm not sure. Um, Mary Tracy, the great runner, her husband, was involved in one of those companies. I think it was the other company, not Adidas. He was asked by both companies would he accept a pair of boots to wear. And Mickey was such a nice fellow, such a great guy. He didn't want to offend either of them. So he wore one of each in the All-Ireland final. <laughs> uh, a more innocent time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, that's uh, more innocent or an extremely uh, savvy business mind there. I mean, I'm not entirely sure which is which, but... No, I mean, climb more towards the former than the latter. Yeah. <laughs> what about this weekend, Jim? There's the confidence was coursing through the veins of Galway people all summer. Then they had a bit of a trip up last weekend. One or two of them apparently were spotted around the Galway races, which isn't necessarily what Galway people want to see happening coming up to matches. Is there trouble in the camp? No, no. Uh, uh, no, and, and we... In fact, most of the people were saying they were at the Golden Races. I don't know, does anyone know whether they were or not? I mean, maybe they were, you know. Uh, and it, I think maybe confidence coursing through our veins all during the summer, but it came with a warning as well. I think many of us were afraid that something might happen, you know. Uh, for instance, against Kerry, Kerry didn't show up, that's well known. They didn't pick their team well, they didn't manage their team well in the day. Kildare, if the sending off hadn't occurred, I'm not sure that we would have won that day either, you know. And there was severe re- re- provocation before the retaliation there uh, that day as well. So there were little things there all, align, uh, all along the line that maybe had us feeling that, this just might be a little bit too good to be true. And I think that was the case. But I think they will fight for their lives this evening. There's no doubt about that. But we know what they're up against. They're up against the machine uh, there. And it's a machine heading for four in a row. And, uh, you know, loads of people are, are saying here in Galway, well, if we fight for our lives again, if we're ultra-defensive and if we're aggressive as we all we are, well, that change everything. But I don't think it will, because either you're good enough or you're not good enough. And this is the problem. Are we as good as Dublin? I don't think anybody thinks we are, really. Funnily enough, I think the the winner of the other semi-final may have a decent chance in the final but that's an argument probably for another day <laughs> but my biggest feeling about this evening really is tied in in many ways to 1983 lads. and I'll tell you why this is 
Because no matter what happened in that 83, with all the lads being sent off uh, and all that, and all the controversy and everything else, if Barney Rock hadn't played as well as he did, well, then Dublin would not have won the match. When the goal came, Kevin Heffernan walked across as well. For a kind, the goalkeeper was aiming for, for Seamus McHugh, I think, but again, not sure of that, about that. Heffernan walked across him. Heffernan was on the pace. The play should have been held up. It wasn't. And the goal went in. But it was a wonderfully, wonderfully clever, very clever piece of, of thinking by Barney Rock to try to chip the goalkeeper from whatever he was, 40 yards out. And that. Barney also kicked six points, kicked brilliant freeze on one of the windiest days I was ever at in All-Ireland Finals. So Barney Rock killed us in 1983. Not the sendings off or anything like that. Now, who could kill us this evening? Dean Rock. His son could kill us because I reckon Dean Rock, while he's a celebrated point scorer for Dublin, a celebrated free taker, a very popular figure, I reckon, curiously enough, and it happens in all sports, actually, I think he's a slightly underrated figure, Bernie Rock, uh, Dean Rock. And I was very surprised, actually, that he didn't pick up at least one uh, Footballer of the Year award in recent years because one of the All-Irons against Mio. Five of the starting Dublin forwards did not play really as well as they could play, but Dean Rock kicked the freeze. Barney killed us in 1983. Dean could kill us again because Dean Rock for the last three or four years has been killing everybody on the place he counts the most, the scoreboard. <laughs> Jim, will Galway's 15 apostles do the business? What's your prediction for tonight? My prediction for tonight is that Galway will play with spirit, more commitment um, than they did last Sunday against Monaghan. But... <laughs> I'd say what I always say in a situation like this. 99 times out of 100, the best horse wins the derby. <laughs> I think I think I know what you're saying. Your heart will not allow you to predict so against So go with it instead. Go with it. Okay, believe in that. Jim, you've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, lads. All uh, the best. Go on. I just love talking to Jim Carney. <laughs> I have to say, it's one of my, one of my favourite soul, things. Lord. It is good for the soul. Yeah, I hope you like listening to him. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, this is going. People haven't let it go. A uh, couple of tweets. I'll tell you, I'll get to those in a couple of minutes. Let's get some more music first. And we'll be back with more of your texts and tweets on Uncle Jim and Dermot O'Leary. We'll also talk about Jose's opening victory at the start of the Premier League last night. This is Lisa Hannigan on Second Captain Saturday. Are your horses hold your tongue the rich and spare Spirits from the jars, hop the fences, steal the cards, run on fumes and from the law, and burn for us right through the
Lovely stuff there. That's Fall by Lisa Hannigan, who I'm informed, Murph, Mm -hmm. is a former goalkeeper, Gaelic football goalkeeper in Mead. Yeah. Underage, yeah. This this might just land Lisa a spot on the show. You <laughs> would want to watch yourself. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's a full call coming, I think. Uh, okay, here we go. This is a lot of text coming in on the Galway, the Dublin thuggery from back in the day. That Dublin team of 1983 had more thugs than any team I ever saw over <laughs> 60 years of watching Gaelic football, says John <laughs> Kenny, who's clearly forgotten about the, the day. I was at the 83 final. I didn't go to another GA match for nearly 10 years after it, says Liam in Galway. Tom says wow. 98 has the same effect on Kildare people. What on the 98? Well, Galway won an exceptional All-Ireland football <laughs> final by four points. I mean, I don't really think that it was that traumatic an experience. I mean, sure, losing is bad, but <laughs> yeah. you know, there were, at least there was no violence. Hey, it's never allowed to go away. It's our dig to Galway from Mayo that no Mayo team was ever beaten by 13 men. Or by 12, 12 men. men. 12 men, were the <laughs> for, point. You want to get your dig there. straight. I was at that match. My memories are the barbed wire around Hill 16 and Pat Canavan at centre-half that day for the dubs. He was outstanding. So mm-hmm. still been get a bit of a look in there. Kieran, I marked Mick Holden in the 1985 semi-final. He was a great character, says Billy Fitzpatrick. Oh, Billy Fitz. Thanks for the text. Why shouldn't... Mayo legend Billy Fitzpatrick. Why shouldn't Galway players go to the races as long as they don't drink? What's the problem? I, I don't have a problem. <laughs> I find it hilarious that these things pop up. They only ever pop up after a defeat. Yeah. If Galway had beaten Monaghan, whether players were or weren't at the races, you just yeah. wouldn't have heard about it. Per- personally speaking, as a Galway man, I'm just happy that uh, the fact that Galway hurlers and footballers are their appearance at the Galway races is frowned upon because they're still in the championship come the end of July. Oh, yeah, normally they're I'm, there, nobody minds. Cause I mean, it's the whole thing. If you're still in the championship after the Galway races, yeah. then you've had a good year. So bring back Jim Kearney, bring back James so insightful with great delivery. He certainly is, Ken. Um, speaking of insightful, mm. how much insight did you glean from Manchester United and their opening day Premier League win over? Leicester last night? Um, not a whole lot on. I do think that Jose Mourinho is going to make Ed Woodward sorry that he was, he's going to make him regret that he was born at some point <laughs> during this season. Um, it was mainly about, about Luke Shaw, I guess. Luke Shaw, the Manchester United left back who scored his first ever goal. Who's been, he's first spent much of goal. the last couple of years being abused, uh, fat shamed and so on. By Jose. But yeah. Uh, and he gave a, I think he thought he was quite nice in his I couldn't but I hadn't really heard him speaking at length before so more my wife was going who's this guy he's the nicest so footballer I've ever seen charm offensive yeah he was really nice which made me feel even more sour towards Mourinho for calling him out publicly well he said um, the last couple of seasons he said in that interview he said you know he likes me to attack and get forward but you know and he, he likes me to defend and stay back so <laughs> best of luck to Luke Shaw in reconciling well, those two yeah. irreconcilable um, 
aims. Just master the art of bilocation and uh, we should be fine I here. Don't th- I don't foresee any further problems in the relationship with the manager. There's a little bit of athletics to keep an eye on as well. I should mention before we go, Thomas Barr obviously won his bronze medal on Thursday, the first Irishman ever to win a sprint event. Tomorrow night, Kier McGeehan is in the final of the women's 1500 metres. In the men's 1500 metres, a 17-year-old by the name of Jakob Ing- Ingebrigsten from Norway won the race, Murph. This is notable, mm-hmm. A, because he's still in school and B, because two of his victims were 25-year-old Philip Ingebrigsten and 27-year-old Henrik Inga Brixton, his two brothers, their nickname, the Incredible Inga Brixtons. <laughs> they, didn't really, they didn't really work overtime on the nickname, did they? Yeah. All right, we'll have to leave things there. If you're looking for us during the week, just get on to secondcaptains.com to listen to our shows every day on the Second Captains World Service. Our interview with the extremely competitive Gary Neville is waiting there for you. We're going to be back on Radio 1 next Saturday morning with the brilliant Sharon Horgan. Looking forward to that. Thanks to Mark Horgan and Simon Hick for producing the show, to Killian Down on research, Richie McCullough on sound. Brendan O'Connor is coming up next. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. First cap and whatever. They never got on those first stuff, guys.